We like to ask the question about things, that all the things we do, and there are many things we do, do they fit into one of those circles, which they probably will, but do they particularly fit two or three of them? There's a central sweet spot that uh, Steve mentioned, that darker purple bit, where all three sort of come together. And, uh, And it's possible to be intentional about that. I could use numerous examples, but a very very good and successful one is the arc that we uh, see on Friday mornings with uh, uh, my son say mothers and toddlers but there's some fathers there as well but it was absolutely heaving this Friday I wasn't here but I know Marion was I wasn't in the building I was elsewhere but Marion was here and she there was a bit of emergency help needed I don't know how many you had 160 70 or something it's right uh, to the 100 what 185 I mean it's incredible <laughs> dangerously exciting. Uh, Yeah, and it's a great example because I think that you are building community within the church and you're very much reaching out to the community around. We are looking to bring our culture of grace and love for God and Christ-centered into what we do, and we're beginning already one-to-one, but even intentionally, to share the good news about Jesus in just small ways, maybe the sorts of songs done, or the, or, or, but, but it's not really only going to happen there. It's going to sometimes be one-to-one, and maybe a person who's interested will then be invited to an alpha or to a marriage course. And so it's, it, it, it might be perhaps more in the community sort of circle, but you're trying to draw in the other two circles to get it right in the center of the target. So it's a very good way of thinking about things, and we're just going to talk for these few weeks about some of the emphases that help us to be the sort of church we are reaching this city with the hope of the gospel of Jesus. And I'm going to talk about word and spirit this morning, which is one part of our culture. So we'll take a couple of, we're not necessarily going to do every point, I don't think, but just a couple of the points in the creating culture that we feel on our hearts to emphasize. So I want to remind you that we are a word and spirit church, and that will affect everything we do. It will affect our things like the ark. It will affect our small groups, because when we are dealing with things, we are thinking of God's word as a foundation for the standards that we operate in, for the things we believe about what we're doing, and we're looking for the Holy Spirit to anoint us and empower us and guide us in what we are actually doing in any of these things. So our word and spirit, this is not about just head knowledge. It's about being a people of the word and the spirit in all we do. That is very much how God has called us to be. And I would obviously say this, but I do believe it's a biblical thing to be a word and spirit people. It's quite common in churches, particularly in our part of the world, in the West and in in modern Britain, for churches to tend to be a bit one or the other. A church that emphasizes the word or emphasizes the spirit, but leaves the other part a little bit dialed down. We genuinely, genuinely believe we need both, if you like, full on. We know like two jet engines on on a jet, you know, we need both of them firing on full on. We need the Word and the Spirit if God is going to take us where he's going to take us. If we're going to stay climbing up higher and higher with him, we're going to need both jets on full thrust, the Word and the Spirit, not one or the other. Now, actually, this is biblically very important to understand. I believe the Word and the Spirit in the Bible, God's Word, God's Spirit, are deeply entwined, really. They're interdependent, they're interlinked. They are both vitally important. 
Let me begin. What's going to happen today is not a one reading, but there'll be a number of verses to illustrate what I want to say. Let me begin by talking a little bit about the Word. So I'd like you to put up, thanks, that Isaiah verse. Look at this Isaiah verse about God's Word. As the rain, this is God speaking, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, says God, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And God, God is saying himself that my word is creative and living. That when I speak something, it will happen. My word changes things. It never returns to me empty. It accomplishes what I desire. It achieves the purpose for which I sent it. We are not dealing with simply something mechanical. Let's take a New Testament verse that reinforces that. Hebrews 4.12, thank you. For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is something alive. It's something that creates. It's alive and active. Now, the reason it's like that is because the Holy Spirit longs to implement and actualize the Word. The Spirit works with the Word. And when God's word's spoken, it's like the Holy Spirit loves to the Spirit of God to make happen what God said. They are intimately linked. Here's a little hint of that in, in Genesis at creation. Just these few verses, if you could put them up. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And if you know Genesis 1, you know it goes on. God said, God said, and there was. And I think the real implication is that God's speaking brought into being what he said, and if you like, the hint is strongly there that the Spirit was waiting for the Word, hovering over the waters. As God spoke, the Spirit of God moved, and there was a harmony and actualizing of what God had said. And that's still true. So when we get hold of God's word and God speaks things, they come to pass because the Spirit works with them. We could say the Spirit empowers the word. Another quote from somewhere is, the word provides the course, the Spirit is the source. But we can look at one more New Testament thing, uh, verse, just to get this absolutely clear in our heads. Ephesians 6 and verse 17. It says to Christians, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's just forget the helmet for a moment because I'm interested in the sword. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so the two things are together. The sword of the Spirit, and it's capital S, Holy Spirit, is the Word of God. Now, the word used for Word of God here is Rima, and sometimes people can make too much of the difference between Rima and Logos, but there is a difference. That's why the writers use different words. Logos tends to refer to the entire word, the eternal word. Rima to a more now spoken word. Gordon Fee, in his, he's an excellent New Testament scholar, in his commentary on this verse says, the use of Rima for Word of God puts the emphasis on that which is spoken at a given point. So the Word of God is a sword that the Spirit uses 
when it gets in us and we speak it. That's the sort of meaning of that verse. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul wasn't really talking about a book. He didn't really have a book like we've got a book. He had an Old Testament, of course. He was writing some of our book. He's talking about the truth of God being spoken in the power of the Spirit. That is a sword. That does damage to Satan's kingdom. You speak God's word, God's truth, and the Holy Spirit empowers it, and it becomes a powerful weapon, even as you speak it. Paul was talking about probably his own declaration and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, of the things he taught, and he was saying, speak out the truth you know, and as you proclaim it and speak it out, it is a weapon against the forces of darkness. And in a way, you could say this book is then like uh, the sheath in which the sword's kept. So there's nothing particularly holy about the book itself. I know it's called the Holy Bible. My one is here. But it's not really, it's a book. I underline things in my book. I write in it. I, I change which one I have. It sometimes gets tatty. This book was in my backpack going to India and back in the last week, and it gets a bit dog-eared. I'm not going to put it on a cushion and worship it. It's not much good under my pillow at night. It's not a superstitious thing. I put it here to stop the bullets. It's, 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 it's not much use until I get the sword out the sheath. I've got to get the sword out the sheath, and then it's use. How, what's that mean? I've got to get it from there into here and to here and then out of there. And when that's happening, we're talking. We're talking sword of the spirit. We're talking power. We're talking change. Like Helen, things change when you believe God's word and begin to pray them and apply them in your life. The word of God is powerful. It's active. It it does stuff. What God said about it, it will happen. But it doesn't happen when it's still stuck in there. The potential's there. But it's a sheathed sword, and, and you need to get the sword out the sheath. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's not rocket science. This is a physical thing. It's print and ink, and it's leather in this case. But you can also have it in hair. I'm not old-fashioned. Not an old dinosaur me. In here, I have the ESV and the NIV. And I've probably got 101 other ones. And sometimes I read it here. But again, that is a physical thing, isn't it? It may be a screen. And it's rather more cool, perhaps, than a big bulky Bible. But it's still physical. What have I got to do to get it in here? Here you go. You've got to use the physical means God's given you. That's your eyes to read it a lot and frequently and repeatedly. Because like me, I'm not very good at remembering things. To get it in you, you can read it. You can hear it with your physical ears by listening to preaching, by listening to just the Bible being read maybe as you drive along, which people do, and it's a great idea. Or by listening to all sorts of preaching and teaching, not just ours, but it's going in through your ears. You can... Get it into you through your mouth. That's an interesting way of putting it. By singing it and speaking it. So by you, I would like our songs, and they are, thank God, to be mostly some way reflecting the Word of God because I think it's good for us to learn to sing. They don't have to be exactly sort of clunky 
exact quote, but they've got the Word of God. So it's good for us to sing truth. Basically, let's call it truth. To sing truth and to declare truth. We're listening to it and we're expressing something. So you're using physical means to get the Word in you. You're using your eyes, your ears, and your mouth at least. And to be honest, you can't do it any other way. It just doesn't happen by osmosis. You put it under your pillow at night, it won't happen. It's not like sort of, I don't know, camphor oil to clear your nose. It doesn't just sort of, you know, vic or something. Ooh, permeates me. No, no. With the word, you have to engage your physical means. Now, you could say, John, this is almost bordering on rude. You're being very patronizing. I'll just say it for you. Listen, I am a bit, but I know, because I know some of you and I know myself, you may have been a Christian 50 years. You still cannot, you still sometimes will not be giving the Word of God attention. I know it happens. So this is an exhortation, an encouragement to you. Keep reading it. Keep listening to it. Keep speaking it. Keep singing it. Because you're basically getting it out of the sheath and into your heart and ultimately into your mouth. And it will affect your prayers, your conversation, the counsel you give to people, the way you talk at work. If you've got enough of it in you, it will come out. Not in merely sort of like some exact quote. That probably is the least, unless in prayer actually, it can be good. But in conversation you might not be always quoting, but you'll be speaking the truth that's in you. And that is a powerful way of building the church and extending the gospel and the kingdom. And actually, spirit-filled, which we'll come on to in a moment, spirit-filled, word-filled Christians are, I would say, what are normal Christians, but they are the most dangerous sort of Christians for the kingdom of darkness. And I honestly believe what I'm about to say. I believe Satan hates Christians who have really got hold of God's word and are filled with his spirit. And I think it is probably a demonic strategy that almost throughout history you can see Christians either robbed of the Word or robbed of the Spirit or in Satan's ideal sort of robbed of both. They're either not even thinking about the Holy Spirit, they never teach about it, they don't don't expect anything, that we'll come to in a moment, or they don't understand the Word, it's all in Latin, if you're a thousand years ago, or if you're modern, it's so liberal theology tied up, nothing means anything you read, it all doesn't mean that really. When it says ABC, it really means ZWT, you know, and you think, oh, for goodness sake, you know, I can't understand it, I have to have a degree, a, a PhD to understand So I'm robbed of it. I don't know Greek and Latin, so I can't read it. No, no, I'm robbed of it. And, and then there's other ways, other ways, you know, subtle No, no, we don't need preaching. You know, we're modern. We just need pictures and lie on the floor and sing in the Spirit. We do need preaching. We need to hear the Word. We need to hear the real Word. Faith comes from the Word. You won't get faith by watching a picture of a sunset. You can praise and worship God. I love sunsets. But you don't get real faith. You might believe there's a God. Say, oh, it's a beautiful sunset. There must be a God. But if you're going to have real faith, you're going to need real Word. Let's, I don't know if I've probably got out of sync here, poor bloke on the, Jack, I don't know where I am. No, I'm okay, Jack, calm down. (laughs) So that's coming in a minute. We'll get back to that. I think Satan tries to separate the two, and we need to resist him, very determinedly resist him, don't we? 
We don't want to neglect the Word or the Spirit. It's all right. We're now going to take a little more time on the Word practically, and then we go to the Spirit. So what I want to say is our attitude to the Bible is very important for building the church, for being good disciples of Jesus, and for winning in spiritual warfare. And we believe in this church that the Bible is very, very important. And because we believe that, we encourage you to read it. We actually preach from it, and we are not ashamed of that, and we will never go, I hope, in my time, and Steve's time, I know this will be true, so that we don't even think about preaching the Bible. I only put about a 10-minute little blessed thought that could have come from the Daily Telegraph. But no, no, we're going to actually keep to the Word and talk about what it actually says and sometimes have to handle the difficulties of how that doesn't connect with modern society and all the other things you're told. We're actually going to connect it and make the effort to connect it because this suits any society in the end. And it has done through history. But it needs work. It needs work. But it will be worked on. We will have the word central to what we do. Central to our church, uh, if you like, the way we do church and our our issues. And when we talk about what we're going to do, the word's important. When we counsel people, the word's important. When we bring instruction and comfort and exhortation and correction, the word is important. It's not just our opinions. When we pray, the Word's important, and so on and so on. The Word is very, very important. Above all, and this is the point that I was going to, thought I'd missed, I don't want to miss it. (laughs) Above all, faith comes from God's Word. And we do need to bring faith to this. Now, this could be a subject in itself, but I cannot neglect it. I want to quickly draw attention to a bad example and a good example, quickly, in the Bible. Can you put up Hebrews 4.2 now? Thank you. This is about the Old uh, Testament Israelites, the people of God. For indeed, the good news, we'll say, for gospel, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word, it's God's word, which they heard, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, I've gone for an older translation because I could have chosen several that say it the way I think is correct. One or two of the modern ones, including one or two of mine, say they didn't join with others who had faith or something. But I think this older one, and NASB and others go this way, is probably strictly more accurate. It's more helpful for me. It's saying this. They heard the word, but it was no good to them because they didn't mix it with faith. So there's nothing wrong with the word, but they never benefited from it because they didn't believe what God said. So we've got to be a people who learn to believe what God said. That's a little bit what Helen was touching on, a bit of what freedom in Christ is touching on, that we hear the word and we say, oh, that's the truth. What I've been believing is a lie. I'm going to believe the truth. And as you believe what God says, it profits you. It profits you when you mix it with faith. Here's a good example, because the Thessalonians did that. So this verse is from Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So when we come to this, there's a sort of reverence. We, we know it's men involved. Men wrote it. Men printed the book. Men translated it into our language. It's got a very human aspect to it. And yet we know within this is the powerful word of God. So we don't just say, oh, this is like coming to Shakespeare or the Daily Mail. No, it's not. It's a totally different thing. 
And we come to it expecting God to speak to us from it. And then when we get hold of what he's saying, we find it works in us who believe. The Holy Spirit is eager, like he was at creation. So if you'll believe it, I'll help it happen. I'll make it happen. That's what he says. So as you believe it, it begins to work in you. Because the Holy Spirit is hovering like he was in creation, waiting for you to believe God's word so that he can actualize it in your life. So the word of God is very, very important to us. We believe that. We live by it. We want to believe it. We want to understand it. In order to uh, believe it properly, we don't want to just be superficial. We want to say, what does it really say? We're not saying we get everything right. Sometimes we can misunderstand, misinterpret. We need to talk it through. What's it really saying to us? Wow, that's what it's saying. Now we're going to believe that. Now we're going to see God act according to what he said. So we're people of the word. It's our bread. It's our food. It's our light. It's our weapon. It's our sword. But we're also people of the Spirit, and that's equally important. Our attitude to the Holy Spirit is also vital for our success as a church, as disciples of Jesus, and in spiritual warfare. Now, again, I have to emphasize something which I know many of you know. I never cease to be amazed at how wonderful it is to live after Jesus died and rose again. What a privilege to be alive in AD and not BC. Honestly, I know that seems so basic, but sometimes we can get so used to the fact. It is an amazing time. It's the age of the new covenant. Jesus has borne our sins in his own body on the cross. There is a once and for all final answer for sin. Hallelujah. He has risen from the dead. He's broken through Satan. Is, is defeated. He's broken through out of the, out of the grave. He, he's, he's victorious over sin and death and Hades. He's risen at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, because of that, he has poured out the Spirit. Now, the Spirit has come in a new way because something changed, something cosmically changed when Jesus died, rose, and sat at the right hand of the Father. It is different to living in the time of Moses or Elijah, great men though they were. So actually, we are incredibly privileged. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter pronounced the gospel for the first time, proclaimed it clearly for the first time, he said, these are the days that Joel and the others looked into. This happened. And one of the features is the Holy Spirit is given freely to all sorts of people, not just Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, uh, intelligent people, not so intelligent, servant girls and and rulers, old men and young men, and he's saying the Holy Spirit is on all. They're all going to prophesy. What a privilege to live in the new covenant. Isn't it a privilege? You are more privileged. I am more privileged than some of the greatest saints pre-Jesus. They had their own walk with God, their own covenants. They had their own grace. They had their own anointings of the Holy Spirit, but it was nothing like what Jesus has got for you. We must never, never dial down the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple of scriptures which I probably just want to quickly look at, just to remind us of the glories of the gospel, just quickly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes on him, whoever, anyone, shall not perish but have eternal life. I think I just wanted to put that in, because as I'm talking this morning, there may well be in a big gathering like this, some of you 
who are not yet Christians, you're not yet followers of Jesus, and although I'm speaking on a sort of to the church, a bit of an assumption you are, that some of you may not be. It is not a problem for you to join us in following Jesus. You don't have to join this church, but I would love you to come to know Jesus. And this verse summarizes it. God so loved you that he sent his one and only son to bear your sins, to bear the the, the problems that were between you and God, the disconnections, the clouds between you and God. And he bore away that problem. And you, by putting faith in Jesus, can come to know God as your father. You will be born of the Holy Spirit. That's the next verse. You could put it up. John 1, a few chapters earlier. To all who did receive him, that's received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. When you become a Christian, there is not just a change of mind, there is something supernatural goes on. You are born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you from the inside out. Born again is a phrase Jesus gave us. It's in John chapter 3. Born again of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not this morning, you can be. By the end of the meeting, come and talk to one of us. Come and be prayed for. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. Don't miss the opportunity. But even if the majority in this room have already, as it were, been born again, born of the Spirit, please just enjoy what's happened to you. Don't sit there saying, yeah, I know that. Well, enjoy it too. It is a wonderful thing to be born of the Spirit. It's wonderful to be born again from above as a child of God. Now, on the day of Pentecost, I've already referred to this. Sorry, Jack, I knew this had happened. Peter said this, Acts 2. So we'll put it up so that Jack doesn't get confused. But you can then move on because I've already talked about it. (laughs) But on the day of Pentecost, Peter talked about the Holy Spirit coming out on all. And what I want to do is to make something very clear. And some of you older Christians now need to pin back your ears. Because I'm going to say some things that some of you may not quite understand as much as you think. Some of you may not even 100% agree with, but I want to persuade you. There is no question we are all born of the Spirit if we're Christians. We, the Holy Spirit has come in us. He's changed us from the inside out. That is what happens when you put faith in Jesus Christ. However, there is clearly another work of the Spirit in the New Testament. The terminology is flexible, You will find receiving the Spirit, the Spirit coming upon. You will find being filled with the Spirit, and you will find baptized in the Spirit. And it seems very clear to me that it's not about being born into the kingdom of God and being a child of God. It is an empowering for service. It's it's a coming upon of the Holy Spirit that we might effectively be what we are. It is a coming upon, a receiving. It's not really about the new birth. I think this is clearly a distinct experience, which I don't think in my mind there is any doubt about that fact as you read your New Testament and you read the book of Acts. There are a number of situations in which you see a receiving, a baptism, a coming upon talked about. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19 are classic examples. And they're all different, but there is a factor that is not different. Something happens 
where there is absolutely no doubt these people have got it. And the it they seem to have got is whatever happened on the day of Pentecost. They've had their own Pentecost. That's what really happens. Now, we could take a number of examples, but I think Acts 8 is a quite interesting example. We haven't time to turn to it, but those of you who are more concerned to understand this in detail ought to read Acts 8 carefully yourself later. What happens in Acts 8 is this. Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria. Now, when he preaches the gospel in Samaria, very clearly people put faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. People are baptized in water in the name of Jesus. We are told in verse 8, the whole city is full of joy. So there is a change in the atmosphere. There is joy. That's quite a lot of good things to happen. Many of us in the broader world of Christianity would be pretty pleased with what had happened already. These people have stopped doing what they were doing. They've put faith in Jesus. They've been baptized in water, and there's joy in the city. But in Acts 8, verses 15 to 17, we read this. Peter and John go to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now you'd be thoughtful about that. What had happened to those people prior to that? Or let me ask you another simple question. Listen carefully. How did anyone know that these people had not received the Holy Spirit? Let that question sink in. Use it intellectually. How did, use your mind, how did anyone know that the people hadn't received the Spirit? There is joy in the city. They have put faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They have been baptized in water. So how did anybody have the audacity to say, they haven't yet had the Holy Spirit, we better do something more to them? You see, there's many evangelicals, including my old history many years ago, who would say, job done, game over. It's all happened. Peter and John weren't satisfied with that. Now, you see, sometimes people say, well, you know, they were, this was special occasions. Well, they were, but you can argue that two ways. They were special opportunities to make sure everybody had the same experience. That's what they were. We don't want a lesser experience everywhere. They were interested in something beyond people merely, in, in inverted commas, putting faith in Jesus and being water baptized. You think that would have been all they wanted. That's not all they wanted. They actually wanted something else. They wanted them to receive the Spirit. And they prayed for them and placed their hands on them and they received the Spirit. We're told the Spirit, Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Now, the only conclusion I can draw is that there was no evidence that they'd had the same sort of experience that had happened on the day of Pentecost to those. Now, I'm not even going to push this any further than that. You must do your own thinking, because sometimes this can be misused to say you've got to speak in tongues to be sure you're baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. I don't think the Bible gives us the grounds to make that authoritative and rather strong piece of doctrine that some churches have. 
So I'm not going to go to that extreme, but I am not going to back off. Something hadn't happened that should have happened. And that something would seemingly be the Pentecostal-type experience that the disciples had had in Jerusalem. And this still had not happened. They hadn't had their Pentecost, in inverted commas, in Samaria. So the conclusion was there's something missing here and we will lay hands on them and we expect them to get it. It wasn't that to earn it. It wasn't that to wait for it. It was just this needs to be completed. Amen? Now there's another one, Acts 19. Let's look at this. Paul goes to Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now he obviously felt there was something lacking. They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, they were a bit unusual. All of these are slightly unusual. They were a bit unusual in the sense that all they'd heard about was John the Baptist's message, which was, your sinners, repent, and God's going to do something about your sin. He's going to send a saviour. So they had felt a conviction of sin, and they'd repented, and they'd been baptised, as John asked them to be, and anticipated God's answer. And that answer had come in Jesus. And Peter, uh, Paul, I beg your pardon, explains how Jesus has brought the answer to them. But before we go too far, I want to take that question as well. The simple question Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now he clearly saw that question as reasonable and logical, one to ask. Many Christians would not see that as a reasonable and logical question. They'd say, well, of course you get the Spirit when you believe. But he didn't say that. He actually understood that you could believe and not yet have received the Holy Spirit. He clearly expected that if you had received, you'd know you'd received and be able to tell him. They're simple, logical conclusions from his question that you would know and be able to say yes or no. Uh, he expected that. He didn't think, well, I think so. You know, I put faith in you know, Felt a little bit happier when I was a Christian. I'm not really mocking, but often we, that's what the church has come down to. Well, that's okay. That's okay. No, no. Listen. There was a receiving. There was a coming upon. There was an empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's your entitlement. It's like you've paid for two volumes. You've got one volume. You need the second volume. You know, it, it's all paid for. It's done. But you need to know you've got it. By the end of these verses, about verse 8, is it? By the end, Paul... No, it's verse 6. By the end, something happens. Let's read it. When Paul placed his hands on them, he's explained about Jesus, by the way, and he's baptized them again in faith in Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So clearly, Paul completes the process, but he doesn't go straight to the Holy Spirit. He teaches them about Jesus, and he baptizes them in the water. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on and completes the process. He lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. There's that phrase again. There's an empowering, a coming upon of the Holy Spirit. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There is a mass of interesting stuff here, which I know for some of you needs to be slightly looked at. We haven't time for it all. But sometimes people have said, well, you know, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. It's a spontaneous thing. It was spontaneous with the day of Pentecost, you could argue, or sovereignly started rather than spontaneous. That was true of Cornelius, but in Samaria and here in Ephesus, it seems that perhaps more normally, it had to be done. People needed their hands laid on them. They needed to be prayed for. It wasn't like, well, God will zap me if he wants to. Those things did happen, 
but there seems an intentionality quite often. Actually, you need to now pray, and I'll pray for you, to be empowered with the Holy Spirit and receive something that you didn't have before that you might have the power to follow Christ and the power will come with gifts. And you can lay hands on the sick, you can pray in tongues, you, can, uh, you don't have to pray in tongues, but you can, you prophesy and that sort of thing. There were supernatural gifts which came with this and were usually uh, quite quickly evidenced amongst them. So what I'm really saying in all that is that this is an important part of our Christian experience. And I've deliberately laboured it because it's not one that is a done deal in some people's minds. But I believe every Christian can and should have received the Holy Spirit and be able to answer Paul's question with a simple, clear yes. <laughs> I, I've received the Spirit. I, I've been empowered in the Spirit. It may be a bit different for different people. You don't all do exactly the same thing. But there is a knowing that I've, the Spirit of God came on me and empowered me. Now, we must move quickly on because that isn't where you stop. This is my last scripture. You could put up Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. As many of you know, it's an ongoing, continuous tense. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, who we've just been seeing the origins of their church back there in Acts 19, many years later, and he says to them, go on being filled with the Spirit. And he would say to you, the Holy Spirit would, and he would say it, Paul, if he was here, would, uh, and he would say it to me as well. Go on being filled with the Spirit. This is for all of us. As Christians, you may, and I hope you will, be able to answer clearly, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed, you say, yeah, I, I, I know. I know the Spirit came upon me. I know there was an empowering time when I just had a business with God and asked him to fill me. Whatever phrase you'd use, baptize in the Spirit. But that's great, but go on being filled with the Spirit. Go on living in the good of that. It's constantly drinking. This is not like water baptism. You do it once. This is go on drinking the Spirit. Go on being filled with the Spirit. So we as a church believe that every one of you, every one of us, I include myself, needs to be spirit-filled and word-filled. Amen? We need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We need to let the word of God guide us in our personal life, in our church life, in, in our decision-making. And sometimes that will be challenging. And we need to be filled with the Spirit daily, if we're going to live as Christians in our workplace, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, if we're married in our parenting, whatever we're parents, whatever aspect of life we've got, we need to be spirit-filled Christians. Amen? Amen? So, it is a high value of Hope Church that we have the Word and the Spirit both held together, and that we are submitted to the Word and trying to obey the Word, but in the power of the Spirit, as Spirit-filled disciples of Jesus.